We're continuing on with Nehemiah. Here's the story so far. Recap if you're not, if you're not been uh, tr- journeying along with us. But uh, even though ancient Israel had been saved from Egyptian slavery and brought into their own land and called to be a just and righteous nation, they failed. They perpetuated evil, they worshiped false gods, and God intervened in a radical way, sent foreign nations to actually conquer them and exile them uh, into Babylon, and they were gone for 70 years. There was a small remnant left in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, and then, but most of the people were dragged off into exile in Babylon. After 70 years, people begin to return. One of the people who returns is Nehemiah. He's the king bear, the, the, excuse me, he's the cupbearer, not the king bearer. That's not a thing. He's the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, who's the ruler of the Persian Empire at the time. And he uh, secures resources from Artaxerxes to rebuild, to refortify Jerusalem. It's still in disrepair from the original conquering, but more recently parts of the wall and the gates have been burned down. And so he, he gets this resource. And I think to show his appreciation, because we love to appreciate, I, I imagine that, that Nehemiah switched it up. One, you know, to show appreciation for the resources that he got from Artaxerxes, that instead of bringing him a cup one day as the cupbearer, he brought him a mug. That's what I like to imagine. He brought him a mug with, the, with a special custom inscription on it, greatest tyrant ever. That's just what I like to imagine, you know, just to really give him the fills, you know, just as Rochelle was saying, to know your audience, you know, that kind of thing. So all of this matters. Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah matters in the Old Testament because God had promised to bring about the Savior of the world through the descendants of Abraham. And so Nehemiah is building up to the coming of Jesus. And as Christians, that's what we're all about. We're all about the person and work and ministry and life of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And so when we go back into the Old Testament and look into it, it's basically like a Christian prequel. That's what we're doing. That's what the Old Testament is. It's the Christian prequel. Today we're going to be in chapter 9, verse 38, going through verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 39, I believe. And but we're going to actually skip. I'm going to cheat and skip a little bit here. Because we've got another little list of names here. And I'm just going to go ahead and skip them this time. So th- you're welcome. Let's, uh, so, so before I pray and read this, basically the people today enter into a covenant And we're going to learn about the importance of making promises and commitments to God and the kind of promises and commitments that we need to make to God and to to each other. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the life of Nehemiah and what you called him to do and how you've been teaching us through this journey. And I pray today you would teach us again about what it means to make promises and what it means to fully participate in your kingdom, in the work you've called us to do. And I pray if anyone here today doesn't know you, I pray today show them the way. Lord Jesus, show them the way in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's read here, chapter 9, verse 38. Carrying along from last week, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. And then we're going to jump from, we're not going to do verse 2, we're going to jump from verse 1 to verse 28. Continue on there. So basically we're just jumping, a bu- we're just jumping over a bunch of names. That's all we're doing. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands 
uh, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the ex, uh, exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, very important to fund the bread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi, and just to say the sons of Levi were very well dressed. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. What's going on here? Let's explain it, let's understand it, let's apply it to our lives. Last week, we left off where they had this solemn assembly. The people are reflecting on their own sin, they're repenting, they're confessing their sins, looking back over the failure of Israel in, in generations past, and they're not just reflect, reflecting on that, they're also reflecting on how gracious God was, time and again, how they messed up, God redeemed them, they screwed up, God saved them, time and again, that was the reflection of last week. And now we're seeing that the people are in this state of, of humility, 
the state of vulnerability and honesty, they, they, they realize we don't want to just be broken and sad over our sin and the mistakes of the past. We don't want to just stay in that place. We, we're doing that. That's important. We're, we're being solemn and sorrowful about what's happened. But we don't want to just stay there. We want to take action to actually avoid those things, to, to move away from those things, to, say we, we, to, to overcome those things. And so the people, they make a covenant. And this is a public thing. It lists out all the people who either signed it or put their, their seal. Their, people had a seal or a stamp um, that was a, a, worked as a, a, an ancient signature, essentially. And so they, they have this public document and they seal it with their names, all the nobles, the leaders, the, the, the well-to-do people, or the, you know, the well-known people, the people in charge of stuff, they all, they all sign it. And then uh, beyond that, actually, the rest of the people, you couldn't have a document that everyone could sign because you're talking about, about thousands upon thousands of people here. Uh, the rest of the people could have committed to this verbally, made a verbal oath to verbal commitment to this uh, covenant. And you know, we get the ideas of, of making commitments, right, that uh, if you live in Chicago, then unless you're couch surfing or living in a tent, uh, you've signed an apartment lease, you've signed a mortgage agreement, you know, we get the idea of making commitments, right, like this. If you write a check, if you actually still have checks, anyone still uses checks these days, if you have a check and you write it out, you are promising that your bank account has that value of money in it. That's, you're making that commitment to somebody. So we all get the idea of it. And also, on our smart devices, right, we're constantly having to accept terms and conditions. Right? They're legally binding. I mean, if you actually had to read that stuff, I mean, we'd be here till the second coming, might even miss the rapture if you're in danger of, you know, it's so long. Now, do you notice this? They're doing this where before you could just hit accept without reading it because anyone actually read it? I'm just interested. Anyone read it? You sometimes, wow, Al, just amazing. She needs plenty of stickers, plenty of stickers for today. Uh, most normal people aren't reading it. Uh, so, but now they've done it where you have to scroll to the bottom. You've seen this coming up recently. I don't know. I just noticed this recently. You have to scroll all the way to the bottom as like a fake. But like, it's like a way of being like, well, I ha at least they made me scroll all the way to the bottom. Anyway, so we get the idea of making commitments and, and making promises and trying to abide by their terms and conditions, which none of us know what those actually are in that uh, situation. Now, you might say, well, you can't really compare God's unbreakable covenant, a divine covenant that God makes with his people. You can't really compare that to, like, leases and mortgages and terms and agreements. You can't really do that, can you? To that, I would say you've never had a cell phone contract with AT&T. So, and if you, if you want to really understand God's dedication to us and the unbreakable nature of God's covenant to us, just sign up for a timeshare. Just get into, uh, they're, they're imposs almost impossible to break, I think. Um, but you, you get the idea, you, we're trying to get across here, that a promise is, a, is, a, is a, an important commitment that you, you make it because it's beneficial to both sides. So you enter into an agreement with somebody else, you promise you're going to do something for them and they're going to do something for you. And if you both keep to the agreement, your life's better because of it. You have a good outcome. They have a good outcome. And that's great. That's the, that's the reason that you do it. And it assumes in here the great blessing. They're assuming that as they enter into this covenant with God, they're going to be blessed because of it. And obviously the reason that they weren't blessed before and that they were exiled is because they broke uh, God's covenant, God's promises. They also take it a step further. It actually says they enter into a curse. 
You notice that when we read it? That was kind of interesting. They got entered into a curse. So they're, they're not just saying we recognize God will bless us if we keep this promise. They're recognizing we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we break this. Now, you might think, well, wouldn't it just be smarter just to not make the promise in the first place, you know, if you're going to bring a curse upon yourself? But the, the, the thing is that if you, if you go against God anyway, you're going to be in a lot of trouble no matter what. So in making a covenant, making a promise, and, and, and saying, yes, there's going to be a good outcome from that, and then also saying there'll be a curse from it, you're just, you're just, you're just admitting what would happen anyway. And, and the curse side of things. And obviously, the greater the curse, the greater the cursing that you experience in your life. But if you want to ensure your own commitment, your own longevity in a promise that you've made or, or, or something that you intend to be faithful to, making it public, writing it out, getting other people involved, right? Spelling out, these are the good outcomes of my promise. These are the consequences to failing my promise, even building in rewards and punishments into it. People take this principle of a covenant and they apply it to all kinds of things. The most important thing to apply this to is our spiritual life, is our commitments to God, like making those kind of promises and commitments to God. That's the most important thing. But you you can apply this principle to anything. So anything in your life that you say, I want to be more consistent at this, make a covenant, make it public. Put your seal on it. Put your signature on it. Talk about the blessings and the, and, and, and the letdowns of failing it because it, it ha- it's a spiritual principle. It has power to actually help you to maintain the commitments that you know you want to maintain. Doing that in the right spirit can be, can be extremely uh, powerful. God, of course, is an oath-taking God. We see this throughout the Bible. That's what the two testaments are, right? The Old Testament or the, the First Testament is essentially the first oath, the first promise. That you, could, you could literally cross out testament in your Bible and write promise. This is the first promise or the old promise. Now we've got the new promise, the new commitment from God. So God is an oath taking God himself. Jesus in the, in the gospel swore under oath. He took an oath. The apostle Paul, same thing. Now Jesus does warn us. He, there is some teaching in the, in, in the New Testament about how you take oaths. And Jesus is saying, some people misinterpret it and think that you shouldn't ever really take an oath. But what Jesus is warning us about is how we take an oath because he's basically saying you know don't swear by heaven and earth don't swear by something else if you commit to something if you say you're going to do it then you should do it your yes should be yes if you say you're not going to do it then your no should be no that's what he's talking about he's not saying you can't enter into a commitment he's saying don't do something stupid like say i swear on my mother's grave that's what he's saying essentially don't swear on heaven and earth don't 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 make the consequence something else make it your own character, your own integrity. Swear on that, and, and that's, that's the best way to make an oath. Now, some might say, well, this stuff sounds a little legalistic to me. Sounds a little too Old Testament, a little legalistic. You know, surely, you know, if you make a big commitment, a big promise, aren't you just going to be disappointed because you're going to fail it at some time? Isn't that, isn't that just the way to think about it? Problem with this, this way of thinking is that well, then, then you could just say to people, well, never get married right? Never get married. Never make marriage vows. Never sign a marriage license. You know, don't get an apartment. Don't get a house. Don't get a credit card. Never apply for a credit card, which is actually very true for some people. Actually, that is a, for some people, that is definitely don't get a credit card if you don't know how to use it very well. Some commitments are not right. Some commitments done in a wrong spirit, in a wrong way, some things we should not commit to. We should say, no, that's not, you know, three o'clock in the morning, watching an infomercial, you know, 
three payments of $14.99 for a, a mop that's also a lamp. <laughs> not a good, not something we need to be giving ourselves to. But just because something can become legalistic, if it's good, doesn't mean we get rid of it. So the Bible, you know, Bible reading could become, feel like an obligation sometimes. It could, you could say, oh, I'm being a bit legalistic about it. That doesn't mean you throw your Bible away. So entering into a promise, making a promise about something that's good in the right spirit, something that is noble, something that's a good thing to aim towards, making a, a, a public, even a written commitment that is binding, even legally binding, done in the right spirit, can be very fruitful, can be very powerful. Actually, it's an admission that we don't have the willpower ourselves. Because that, that's the power of a promise, the power... This, this aspect of it doesn't apply to God. God's promises to us are to give us confidence and to also to say that also, it's also wisdom on God's part because he probably knows we're going to mess up so bad. So he's like, if I don't make it a promise, an unbreakable promise, then, then you know, maybe I change my mind and be like, this is these people. What the? So by God, it's so gracious that God makes it an unbreakable covenant to us so that then he cannot renege on it. For us though, we don't have the will that God has, and so we're likely to break the good intentions that we have or not be as consistent in the things we know are important that we know we should do. And so making a covenant actually helps when you're low in willpower and very tempted, if you've made a covenant in something, so, I mean, honestly, you think about marriage, you think about other kind of commitments that we make, you think about those things in a moment of temptation, a moment of weakness, where you might be faltering or failing it in some regard or, or almost failing it, the power of the accountability of it, I've made this commitment, my reputation's on, you know, on the line here, people know about this, you know, all the, that has the power in a moment of weakness when your own will is so low, the covenant gets you across that valley. That's the reason you make a promise, that's the reason you enter into a commitment, and you can enter into all kinds of commitments that are healthy and good done in the right spirit. They entered into, there were seven things in particular in this passage that they pointed out were important. Actually, what's interesting is they, they make this covenant. God had already given them covenants and promises, and they, they, they don't list out everything. They pick things that they, that they had, in more recent history, had particularly struggled to do. So they're being strategic and pinpointing their weaknesses, saying we want to commit to these things. So they're obviously committed to all of God's law, but they're, they're saying these are some areas we failed, so we want to look at these things. So seven things here, we're going to put these up, seven things that they committed to, only marrying people of the same faith, not selling on the Sabbath, observing the seventh year rest, paying temple tax, providing wood for burning the sacrifices, bringing the first fruits of the harvest and the firstborn sons and the animals as well, and then giving a tithe to the Levites and priests. And what we can do is we can actually group these together into three. We're going to look at these in three groupings. We're going to look at, actually go back to the first list, sorry. So the first one is its own group, looking at uh, marriage. Uh, the second grouping is going to be two and three, looking at Sabbath and resting. And then the last four are all to do with essentially financially supporting ministry. So we're going to look at those three. Those other slides we're going to get to later on in the sermon, so no need to, to look at those ones right away. So let's start with this. So the first one that they make is this commitment to say, we, we don't want to give our children into marriages of pagan nations. 
That's the first thing that they, they promise God they're not going to do this. Now, that Israelites were free to marry people of other ethnicities. Um, this is not an issue of, of, of ethnicity at all. This is because, for example, you have like someone like Rahab or someone like Ruth who were not you know, descended from Abraham, but they were brought into the covenant and they're part of the, you know, the people of God. So that, that's not the issue. The issue here is it's not ethnic purity, it's spiritual purity. Because the people that intermarried into other religions and other faiths basically were drawn away from their covenant and their commitment to God and tempted into worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. And you see it in, you know, uh, King David's son, uh, King Solomon, was, is probably the greatest example of this. Uh, obviously, just having more than one wife is problematic in and of itself. Uh, no man can handle more than one wife anyway. Uh, but the... Uh, that's the fault with the man, not, not the woman, you understand. Uh, also, women are very, most women are very glad, actually, that they, uh, you know, that the husband, only, you know, that they only have one husband as well. So it's a good thing. And by the way, husbands, with the stickers today, make sure you give your wife at least three stickers. All right? Just a little tip there. It's true. My wife just said it's true. I've learned, I learned something. I got it. It's amazing. It's always encouraging as a husband when you get it right ahead of time rather than, the, anyway. So, um, where did I get to? So they are trying to maintain their spiritual uh, purity. And even someone like Solomon was drawn away by his many wives and concubines that he had because he married all these, all these women of other... It's, it wasn't that they were foreign women. It was that they were women of other religions. That's the point. And so um, they're making this covenant because they're saying, we want, this is a mistake. This is a huge mistake that God's people keep making over and over and over again. We keep sabotaging our spiritual vitality and our spiritual purity by, by mixing our faith with other faiths, and this is not going to work very well for us. And this actually goes all the way into the New Testament as well. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes it like this. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And uh, this is, being yoked is a, is a metaphor for marriage. Um, sometimes I think that's not a great metaphor, you know, uh, the idea of, like, you know, being chained to, you know, your spouse is not an animal that you're chained to, you know. But that, that's not the point, of course. The idea is that you're, you're bound together, right? You're, you're com completely, for life long, you're, you're completely committed together. So the, I, let me say this. If you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, let's say, you got married before you became a Christian, and then after your marriage, you became a Christian, but your spouse is not a believer. Um, that's your situation. Or perhaps you were a believer, and you, just, you married somebody of a different faith or of no faith. If you're in that kind of situation, let me say to you, stay married and make it the best marriage it can be. Make it a great marriage. Serve them, love them, honor them. Do everything you can to to. to, to, to let your life be a witness to the gospel for them that they might believe themselves, but just make it the best relationship it can be. But let me also say this. If you're single and you're a believer, don't marry somebody who's not a believer. Don't do it. Why don't do it? We just read the verse from the Apostle Paul, and he says not to do it. It's a good reason not to do it. Very wise guy. Nehemiah's generation knew. Don't do this. This, is, this draws your heart away. If you happen to have done it, don't get divorced. Make it the best it can be. But if, you, if you're before that, don't, don't fall into that 
mistake. It would be better to never marry than to be spiritually lopsided in your marriage. We've seen this time and again throughout the history of our church. Sadly, we've seen it happen a handful of times at least, I should say, where some have been, and I talk to other pastor friends of mine who have experienced this time and again, where some who are so desperate to be married, and I, I get I get it's a very natural, understandable desire to be married, to not be alone. And, but over time, some people, that, that feeling becomes so strong that they'll compromise and they'll say, well, you know, I met this person and I've got all these feelings and, you know, well, they come from a Christian family and, you know, they're, they're a good person. And, you know, they, they start saying these things. You're like, and, you, and the, the obvious question is, but do they believe? Like, are they actually a believer? And, you know, they end up kind of getting around it and those kind of things. And 99.9% and of the time, it doesn't go great. Like, it, it doesn't, you know, I've met so many people who have been married for years to somebody who's not a believer, and they say, this is really hard. Raise, you know, raising kids together is really hard. All these, you know, really challenging. Now, some people make it work, and it can be, it can be okay, but... It would be, again, it would be better to, to, to not marry than to, to compromise in that way. Also, it's not just enough for somebody to be a believer in order just to marry them. That's also a mistake that people make. That, you know, they had arranged marriages back in the day, and a lot of cultures have arranged marriages. Frankly, they can work out better sometimes than... I think, I think a lot of us, most human beings, we're not good at picking partners for ourselves. We're, the laugh there... That tells me, yes, everyone knows this to be true. Now, look, there's no perfect person for you. Like, lots of different types of people can, be, can have a successful marriage and, be, you know, it can work out. But there are some combinations or some individuals where it's like, no, 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 no. And most people can see it. And hopefully, if, that, you know, if, if anyone here is ever in that situation, hopefully you've got friends who are kind enough and bold enough and wise enough to sit you down and say, really no, like no, no, in every way, no. Hopefully, uh, that will be the case. I've had to have that com conversation a few times with a few people over the years, and almost in every situation, the, the person was so infatuated with the, with the situation and the person that they, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. And, um, you know, it's, it's just tragic to see what happens in, as an outgrowth of, of those decisions. So that's the first thing is don't don't violate your spiritual vitality by, by marrying an unbeliever, by marrying outside of the faith. Keep it in the faith. You'll be blessed. And if you never get married, you'll be much more blessed than if you compromised on that. I know that's hard. I know that's not always easy. Uh, but singleness actually can be a very rewarding, very meaningful life as well. And honestly, a lot of married people have a lot of problems too. Marriage is not your cure, not your solution. Marriage is pretty hard work, all right? <laughs> So, the second thing that they, moving them right along here, the second thing that they covenant to, that they make a promise about, is rest. Is rest. And they, they talk about this seventh, every seventh year rest. I'm not going to talk too much about a sabbatical type situation, but there's principles that can be applied to that as well. But they, the big one to talk about is kind of like a, a seventh day rest, uh, you know, that kind of rhythm, right? That God worked, you know, in creation, God created for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, and we're to mimic that, that idea. In Nehemiah's generation and, and, and the generations before him, they, they really messed this up, and so what they did was they, they made some excuses, and so they, they, they looked at the law, 
and they're saying, well, we're not supposed to work, we're not supposed to sell things on the Sabbath, but if somebody of another nationality, and a foreigner, if they come into town and they want to trade with us, well, it doesn't say you can't do that. So, we, so they would find ways around it. They'd find, it's called a loophole, right? This is people, this is what we do. We, technicalities, legalities, you know, we find loopholes. The other word for it is lawyers. So we, we find all these ways to get around things and say, well, it doesn't explicitly say this, and we miss the spirit of it. We miss the exact spirit of it. And so Nehemiah knows that this whole buying, you know, this whole thing on the Sabbath this is cheating. You're missing the spirit of it. You're missing the, the, the point of resting in a particular rhythm. And so they encode it in this covenant. They make it really clear. This, the Sabbath also means you're not supposed to be trading with foreigners on that day, on the Sabbath day. That's, we're just going to add it in there so that from this point moving forward, no one can be like, well, it doesn't say, because now it says. So how as Christians do we think about the Sabbath? How do we apply the Sabbath in our lives? Because we, we know not everything from the Old Testament gets translated into the New Testament. But we do know that in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we're told that there remains a Sabbath rest. So we know that in some regard, the Sabbath, and it's in the Ten Commandments, so it's, like, it's a big deal. So we've got to think about it. How do we relate to this? Of course, Jesus is always our example. So we look at how Jesus interacted and, and operated within the, in the Sabbath himself. Um, but one of the things we have to understand is that when the New Testament talks about there remains a Sabbath rest... Ultimately, it's, it's the view of heaven that we're, in, we're ultimately looking into entering into the, the, the eternal rest of God in heaven. That's the ultimate Sabbath. All right, that's, what, that's one thing that it's talking about. But when it says there remains a Sabbath rest, also, we can say there are rhythms in our lives where we have to stop working. We have to obey this in some regard and live to this, this ideal in some regard that we are breaking from our work. And the be, I think the best rhythm is still the original one. It's still every seven day, or every six days, you know, you then take a day off. And so you look at Jesus and how Jesus did this. And Jesus observed the Sabbath. So that's a good example. If we want to be like Jesus, we can follow that one. Say, hey, that once, a, once a week, you know, to not work, to, to rest from all of my work. And, but also we see, we discern from the life of Jesus that he teaches, you know, the Sabbath was made for us not us for the Sabbath. So we don't think about the Sabbath as something that we have to obey it and serve it, and it's our master. We are masters of the Sabbath. It's a different mindset, a different shift you have to think about. So on a practical note, actually, as a church, we try to program a lot of our church activities so that we're avoiding Saturdays. So we're not asking people to do stuff on Saturday, because if you, this doesn't work for everyone, it's not true for everyone, but Typically, we encourage people to try and have your Sabbath on a Saturday, um, which is actually, you know, if you, you know, Jews actually do celebrate their Sabbath on a Saturday, so that's actually kind of it works out from that, that regard. Uh, Sundays can be, you know, if you're doing, you know, if you're serving at church, you're involved, and, you know, there's other things, you know, you're getting ready for the rest of the week, running errands, you know, it can be a bit of a busier day. Saturday's really, if you're working a Monday through Friday job, Saturday's really your day. To, to, I don't, I don't, I can't think of another regular time that you could do it, you know, depending, if that's your rhythm. Obviously, if you have a different work schedule, you've got to figure it out. And the key is, that's a little practical. Let me get back to the principle. The key is, is to be flexible with it. There remains the principle of resting from your work. So however it looks in your life, you still have to find a way to do it. 
to be flexible. So what did Jesus do? The, the religious people of Jesus' day, Jesus followed the Sabbath and, and, and observed the Sabbath. But what else did he do? They got really angry at him because he was healing the sick on the Sabbath. Now, is that work? Yes. That's Jesus breaking the law of Moses. All right? No, you can't get around it and be like, what is, it's not really work. No, it, they were angry. And they, they, they were, so the Pharisees were right about this, that Jesus was actually breaking the Sabbath. But he's God, so he can do whatever the heck he wants because they're his rules anyway. And, but he understood the principle behind the Sabbath. He understood the reason you're supposed to break from your work and you're supposed to rest from your work is to obey your limits. It's because we're not, we, we're not God. We need to rest from our work, obey our limits. We need to enjoy the small things of life. We need to get recharged so that we actually can be more effective as we enter into our work. If you're always working, you're exhausted. You can't, you know, you, you can't appreciate and be grateful and be worshipful unless you actually stop and say, I'm not going to work. Now, let me say this. There may be seasons of your life, if you're a student, you're working while you're in school, things like that, there may be times where it's like, it's harder to do this. So it's, let me say, it's not a sin to work on the Sabbath. If you have to break it, the key is to, to do, do it like Jesus, to, to be flexible with it, to say, my intention and my ideal is to rest at this particular rhythm, but just like Jesus Hey, someone needs my help. I'm not going to say no. I'm going to, this is the mission today. This is the thing today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes to that. Because it's not a sin, because my heart is to rest. My heart is to honor God on that day. But if God brings about something that's important, then I'll do that. You know, that's, that's the right heart behind it, the right spirit behind it. So we've looked at marriage. We've looked at the Sabbath, resting. Then the, the, the third big thing that they made a covenant, a promise about to God was supporting ministry, the importance of supporting ministry. So they had, um, what are they, they, they needed supplies um, for the temple, they needed su to, to resources to fund their festivals that they had, um, they had to get all this wood. I never thought about this before, but because they had to sacrifice animals constantly, they had to burn them as a burnt offering, you're basically burning, you have a constant fire all the time. So you need firewood all the time. That, someone's got to go get that. Someone, you know, that's like, somebody, that's like somebody's job. So you need resources for that. Um, they had a temple tax that they uh, were committing to that they had to pay. Um, they had other uh, first fruit offerings that they had to be gathered in and distributed. They had uh, tithes to the, the Levites and the priests. They had all these things that they had to do. And, you know, they returned from exile. They fortified, refortified Jerusalem. They're now looking at the law of Moses and saying, how should we live? How should we do this? How do we go back, return to God, return to the ways of God? How do we prioritize God and get back to our, the proper worship of God? They're asking all these questions and following all these things. And it's so brilliant, so amazing that Nehemiah understands that if we don't start this right, if from the very foundation of this, we don't commit enough resources to maintaining proper worship, we're not going to sustain this thing. We're going to be right back where we were before. So we have to pony up and publicly commit ourselves to fully funding the worship of God and the ministry of the temple and the Levites and the priests and all that they were doing. Did you notice, it's kind of bizarre, it says that they had to bring their, their firstborn sons as well. Did you, did you notice that? 
When I read that, I was scratching my head like, what's all this about? And uh, this is where, you know, having a study Bible, doing a little bit of investigation work into things. I didn't know this, actually, but a very simple answer to this. In, in, in Exodus, what they're told to do is they're told whenever they bring certain offerings to the temple, they're told to bring their firstborn sons, and instead of offering them like pagan nations would do when they would sacrifice their own children, instead of doing that, they paid a ransom. They gave a gift, a ransom gift, as a sign. Our God doesn't, doesn't demand the sacrificing of our children, our God redeems children. It's a powerful image. So it's actually the opposite of what it could look like, where they're bringing their sons to offer them to God. They're actually bringing, to, bringing them and then giving this ransom as a sign uh, of God redeeming uh, the firstborn sons. So it's a really cool um, insight there that I actually learned by, by reading this and studying this myself. Without beginning this way, the priests and the Levites could not have maintained all the different things in the law of Moses, all the things they were called to do, they would never have maintained it. And so to effectively run and do ministry, it has to be adequately funded in the first place. And I think, you know, this is, this is where, when it comes to money and giving and investing in ministry and, and really funding the work of God, this is where the rubber meets the road because you can say all the right things, you can have all the right intentions, but the clearest measurement of our faithfulness and our generosity and our commitment to God and to his purposes and his ways is how generous are we and how consistent are we with that. That's one of the clearest indications. And there's so many blessings that we're told we can experience through being faithful with that. They got it. They understood it. And what's, what's cool about this is that before the exile, the, God's people were kind of treating the temple ministry more like a lucky charm. And religion can be this way, can't it? We can get this way with, with religion where we're like, well, I'm going to kind of live my life how I really want to live it. And then when I go to the temple or I go to church or I see the spiritual leader or whatever it is, then I get absolved for the things that I kind of was doing. And that's my rhythm, right? And I'm kind of paying, you know, when I show up to a religious ceremony or you know, a church meeting or something equivalent, you know, I, I, I treat it like a lucky charm. I throw in a few things, a few coins, a few different things in order to like get God off my back. That can kind of be the mentality. That's where they were before. Now, this isn't Nehemiah's generation. That's not their problem. We're clearly not their problem because they're making this promise that they realize we don't want to treat it that way. But I think that would be, that would be attempt, that's attempt. That's what they were doing before. And praise God, they've learned their lesson. We can't do that again. We've got to be all in with this. I wonder for them if a temptation would have been this. this. This maybe would have been their temptation. Hey, the population is so much smaller, so there's, you know, can't gather as much resources as we had before. Population is smaller. We're under this intense Persian taxation. Man, and I, I, I wonder if they would have looked at those two situations like, man, there's a lot less of us, there's a lot less resource to go around, and we're being heavily taxed by the Persians. If they would have asked, could we really, can we really afford to do all of this temple support, you know, all the, you know, the temple tax and the different tithes and the, 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 the ransom for the firstborn and, 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 the, and the, the, the offering of the first fruits and all, the, all of these, can we actually do this? Because it would have been tempted to say, like, well, why don't we just pick some of the big ones or some of the most important ones? And, you know, it's, it's, things are a little tight right now. I think that, that that's a real, honestly, and our, that's a temptation for us, isn't it? It could be easy to say, like, well, we're, we're a little smaller than we used to be. You know, less of us around. And, well, we, we've got inflation we've got to deal with, you know? 
which is, a, isn't that a royal pain in the butt? You know, we were talking about our food budget recently, and like, we used to have a little bit extra in it, and now we have, now we're, we're in the hole with our food budget. Like, what's going on here? And our gas budget, and all the different budgets. Help us, Jesus, with the budgets. And I think it's so, so tempting to say, well, should we, can we really afford to really fund all the things that God is calling us to fund? Can we really do that? Be so tempting. What do the people say? Instead of, instead of responding that way and giving into that, what do they do? And remember, their taxation was way harder than ours. Verse 29, excuse me, verse 39, the last verse, it says this, it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Trinity Church, today I want to ask you to make a commitment or to reaffirm your commitment to say, I want to be all in with supporting ministry. If this is your church, supporting the ministry of our church. So we're going to go through a few things in light of the covenant they made. What are some promises we can make? And one thing I want you to do is if you, after I go through these, if you're like, I can commit to those, those are great, then on your Connect card that you have, on the back, on the comment section here, I want you to write down, I commit to Trinity, or something of that nature, all right? If you don't have a Connect card, you can do it digitally. You can text the word enjoy to 94,000 and do it that way. Just text it in uh, digitally. You can say that I commit to that. Uh, if you've got more questions or you're not sure about it, then pray about it. You know, get your questions answered. Think about it. I'm not, I don't want to... You know, I'm not selling timeshares today, so I'm not going to be forcing you to uh, make a commitment. This is, you know, covenants and promises need to be entered into voluntarily. Voluntarily, because out of our own faith, out of our own free will and our own faith in God. So we're going to go th uh, through uh, three things. This is what it really means to, to be a part of our church. So the first thing is three commitment areas of commitment is belonging. So at Trinity, we commit to make our best effort to be present. We commit to avoid gossip and divisions. And we commit to follow the leaders. Now, these are kind of standard Christian-y things. There's nothing outrageous here. Not, I can't believe that's on the list. I outrageous. You know, these are things that most churches ask people to say. You know, hey, you know, if I can be there, I'm going to be there. That's important. In a day and age where people are so mobile, where we're, we're always going traveling places, saying, I'm going to do everything in my power. If I can be there, I'm going to be there. It's not easy to do that, but that's something we ask for. That, hey, I'm going to avoid that, you know. Can't all groups of people and communities get pretty toxic? Gossip and divisions and say, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen. And then lastly, then, you know, hey, I'm going to commit to follow the leaders, assuming that, that, that leadership is not doing anything immoral. You get the, you know, you're not supposed to follow anything immoral, but following the general vision and direction of the church. All right, that's important. So then this, uh, the second big thing is welcoming. We're going to be a welcoming church. So we commit to pray for and welcome growth. We commit to invite others. We commit to warmly greet guests. You've got to remember you were a guest once. You've got to remember what that feels like to be new and be like, I don't know the people. I don't know what's going to be expected. I don't know where the restrooms are. I don't know, you know, what, you know, is this church, are they going to bring out snakes? Are they going to, like, what's going to happen here? You know, it can be very nerve-wracking. And uh, just remember how that felt. And, and yes, we have a welcome experience team, but I want our whole church to be a greeting team. We're all on the greeting team. So we want to be a welcoming church. We want to be a church that's praying for and welcoming growth. But, you know, one of the dangers of any church is people that we say, well, I, I like it just as it is. 
I like the size, and I like, I like you know, having control. Or, you know, it's, it's comforting to me. Just, it's, I can, uh, the expect- it meets my expectations. And, you know, that's a little selfish. You know, that's a little one-sided. You know, we, we, we want, we have the greatest message that the world needs. We want it to go to everyone. So we want to be willing to, like, blow up our comforts and what makes us happy and say, if more people coming in means that it feels a little different, then I'm totally okay with that. Because God loves people. And my sense of personal comfort doesn't matter at all if it means more people coming into God's family and being transformed by the gospel. So we want to be a welcoming church. The third thing is that we want to be a participating church. What's the third third thing? (laughs) My son, the amazing Jones Sweetman, everybody. He is. Yeah, give him appreciation today. Appreciation. You get a sticker. I'm going to give you the You Rock sticker. So 90%, yeah. Particip- so third thing we want to commit to is participating. So we commit to play a part in a small group. We, at Trinity, we commit to make a difference in a serving team. And then uh, at Trinity, we commit to regular giving. And again, all of these things that we've gone through, hey, they have Bible verses attached to them. They're just the regular old, I'm a Christian, these are the Christian-y things I do. We're just spelling it out, making it clear. This is the kind of promise that can bear such good fruit. We don't make these promises so that then we can trick people and then be like, hey, you said you would do this and you're not doing it, so you're fired. Like, that's not how it works. This is an ideal to live. We make the promise so that we know if, we fa- if we're failing the promise, we get the conviction of the Spirit to say, I made a promise because I knew it was the right thing. I know it's a good thing, and I'm not living up to it. And so because I made the promise, because I gave my word, I'm going to come back to that promise. That's the power of making a covenant, making a commitment. That's the, the work that the, the Holy Spirit uses it that way in our life. So you can go ahead and take that down there. So we've got those, those three things, belonging, welcoming, and participating. That's the promise. That's the commitment to be, to be a part of uh, a church like Trinity, specifically our church. We don't do things like that because we're obligated to. We don't do it because it's like we, we have to do it. I don't want anyone leaving today thinking like, well, Matt said, you know, pfft. Yeah, I got to do it. You know, Matt said it. You know, the covenant that we have from God, the promise we have from God, see, see for them, they had to support temple ministry. Now, we, we're told we don't support temple ministry anymore. We support church ministry now. That's clearly shifted. But what they had to support, in part, was the offering of, of animals and the blood of animals to cover their sin. In Jesus, we have one sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, given for us that covers us forever. That's grace. So because of this one time, once and for all, blood sacrifice from Jesus, our sin is eternally covered, we're eternally set free, eternally forgiven, eternally secure in God, and because of that wonderful, amazing gift of Jesus on the cross, we get to play a part. When you understand the gospel, it's the most freeing, most radical, most amazing thing. And so it totally reframes and transforms how you actually get involved in a church ministry. Because rather than being obligated and like, oh, it's just you know, a heavy burden, I've got to do it. You say, look at what Jesus has done for me. Look what I get to do. That's the, if you're not doing it that way, then may I suggest you haven't understood the gospel of grace. You haven't understood the freeness of it, the completeness of it, the power of it. And only until we understand that can we be free to give and give and give and be ridiculously joyful about giving. And not to, because sometimes we think sacrifice is painful. We don't realize sacrifice is joy. 
Sacrifice is joy. We need to sing because joy, the greatest way to find joy is to sing and, you know, loud, sing loud for all to hear, right? That's the way you spread Christmas cheer. So let's, let's spread some, some, some Jesus cheer today. It's church appreciation. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's thank him. Let's think about how we can respond today. 